Well, hey, I hope you're doing well today, and to everyone who's here for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're with us today, and those joining us online for the first time, welcome. Um, today, I know we have a full uh, room over in the aux room and the, and the Next Steps room, and I know some of you are in the lobby, and so let's show some love to them, everybody that's with us here today, but we couldn't fit everyone. It's kind of like when I grew up, there were eight of us, and I think we had a vehicle that didn't have eight seats, and so someone would just sit on the floor. Don't judge my parents. And um, so, but we're just, we're, we're grateful that you're here today. And then um, our family at SCI Chester in partnership with God Behind Bars. Can we show them some love? Clap for them. We're still excited and anticipating um, our live in-person uh, services um, with our family at SCI Chester. And so that is nearing the day of that is getting closer. So we're praying about that. We're excited about that. How many of you guys received a devotional last week and have been on track reading it? Oh, God. Everyone was clapping so loud about everything. <laughs> Reading the Bible, and it's just like, okay, listen to me. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And uh, listen, don't be discouraged, um, but, but, but this is what I've learned. Um, anytime you try to fit other things in before God, God gets pushed out. Find, make time to spend with the Lord first. Everybody say first. Some of you are like, well, I have kids. That's, that's all right. Make it first. Get up early. Spend time with God, even if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes. Give him your best, but learn the principle of giving him your first. And um, I, I, I think... There are some of us that just have to refine the edges around saying, no, this is, this is an eternal thing. It's a significant thing. I'm going to give God my first. And when you do that, you're going to build not only just a habit in your life, you're going to build a strong conviction in your life that'll see you through the rest of your life. And so um, there were um, well over a thousand uh, devotionals handed out last week. Make sure as you leave today, if you have not received a devotional, you pick one up. I know it's also available on the app so you can uh, read through uh, the devotional as well on the app if you don't have a hard copy, but we want to make sure that everyone gets a copy. It is day eight. It's not too late to jump into the devotional. We are reading through the entire book of James through the month of January um, as a church family. And um, I can't reiterate how excited um, I get when we all as a family read through the same portion of the scriptures together. I believe it helps us in more ways than we can recognize. Um, I also wanted to make sure that I, I mentioned today starts growth track. Um, a lot of you always ask questions. Hey, how can I get more involved? What can I do um, to be part of team or to allow my gifts to be used in the church? And how can I learn more? Growth track is the way um, for you to not only belong on team, but to hear more about the life of our church, to hear the vision, the heartbeat. Um, I love it because I get a, a chance to say hello to people, which I often don't get the opportunity to do. Our staff will be there, a portion of our staff, um, through the three-week course. It happens after our one o'clock service. Um, at 2.30, it starts right in this room. The team turns this room around. We use this room for our growth track class. And so there are a fair bit of people signed up. It's not too late to do that. But I would love for uh, you to take the time to say, hey, you know, this is a year I'm going to step up. I'm going to give more of who I am to being part of this family um, here at True North Church. Can you say amen to that? Does anyone else get lost with the amount of James in the New Testament? I'm the only person. And um, sometimes you read through and you're like, yeah, James, I know James. Well, you know one of the James. There are a lot of James in the New Testament. James um, and John, the sons of Zebedee, you might be familiar with them. That's 
uh, James, he was a disciple. Also, James, son of Alphaeus, he was a disciple as well. But the book of James was not written by those. The book of James was written by James the Just, as he's often referred to in Scripture. He has some other peculiar nicknames um, that we'll come to later on in our time. But I love James. It is a very, very practical book. I often say this. I think this book was written for people who live in New Jersey. Like, and I'm not trying to be funny. I'm like dead serious. If you're like, what book could people in New Jersey? It's James. Why? It's incredibly practical. It's to the point. It's not like, hey, how are you feeling today? Are you all right? Can I be honest with you? No, it's like, hey, this is God's word. Walk in it. Whether you want to hear it or not, like this is what the word of God says. And I think we need that. Um, I think all believers need it. I think if we live in New Jersey, we may need it a little more. But um, this book is brilliant in so many ways. It's often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is so practical in the way that it's laid out. James um, is writing to a Jewish audience. At the beginning of the book, you realize that he's talking to the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered throughout. And I want to give a little bit of time to give you the context of this, because sometimes when you read scripture and you're reading it, you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. well, that's not for me because I'm like in a really bad place. And obviously this person is not. And so I'm just, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it because it's the Bible, but they, they don't get it because that's not where I am. I want you to give, uh, understand context. James is writing. Um, he is the half brother of Jesus. Um, which we'll talk more about in just a moment, but he's writing in the context when all the tribes have scattered. If you read in the book of Acts, you'll recognize the time period. James is writing in the similar time period. Theologians, scholars suggest it's prior to 50 AD, but it could be 40 or 45 AD. Nonetheless, it's in the time period where the church has scattered because it has experienced the first martyr of the church, which is Stephen. Do you remember that incident in the book of um, um, uh, in the word of God where Stephen is killed, Saul is standing present who would later find his conversion and become Paul. We read his books throughout the New Testament. He is standing there watching Stephen be executed because he is a follower of Christ. The entire church flees. Everyone runs into a different direction. Everyone's trying to figure out where do we go? What do we do? And everyone has a heightened sense of worry. And they're all going through trials and tribulations. Now, many of us here today, you can be like, well, I've gone through trials and tribulations, and all of us have. Some of them are more intense than others, but I personally, I don't know about you. I'm not speaking for you. I don't know your story. I know we have people from all over the world at times that are part of our family, but I have never um, been hunted down um, as a believer in Jesus for that reason, been hunted down where someone was attempting to kill me, my wife, and my children because I follow Christ. But this is what they're dealing with. This is not like, you know, it's just, hey, you're going to get a fine if they catch you and they find out you have a Bible. No, if you are a follower of the way, which is what they would refer to them as at that time period, then you would be hunted down, ultimately brought before the, the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council, and you would be executed. So there's a little bit of um, tension I would say, in, in the early church. Can you say amen? And, and, and so that tension causes the church to be, um, to question how to go through trials and tribulations. They've experienced the death and the resurrection of Christ, and, and it is, is significant. And I've, I find it fascinating because James, being the half-brother of Jesus, doesn't find a true conversion moment until Jesus has a conversation with him 
after he is resurrected in 1 Corinthians 15, he has a conversations with James. And when he has that conversation, it's like everything in James' life changes. He's not the same person. Prior to that, there was the skepticism, like, yeah, I don't know. After the resurrection, James is a different person. He's not even remotely the same. If you were to turn to, um, I have way too much stuff on this platform. Something will fall. I'm just telling you, so don't laugh when it happens. It will fall. Mark chapter 6, um, listen to what it says. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples in his hometown. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? And what are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. We know, according to that scripture alone, that there were at least six children in his in his household, and I mean, I can't imagine, um, well, anytime you are in a big family, I'm one of eight, my father's one of 11, and you have a big family, there's always a weird competitive nature. I can't imagine having Jesus in your family, you would never win anything. It, like, nothing, you would, you'd always be second, which would be pretty frustrating, but, but here's James, and when James has this conversion moment, this revelation, this is fascinating, I want some of you to, 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 Grasp this. He grew up with Christ. He watched him teach and preach. He watched him go to the cross and be crucified. And then when he defeated sin and death and had a personal conversation with him, it was like James saw him for who he really was. But up until that point, he never truly saw him for who he was. And maybe that's a question you need to ask yourself today. Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Because when you do that, you, my friend, will never be the same. Your life will be turned upside down. You will not be the same person because of your ability to see Christ for who he is. James begins his book in, I personally believe in, in quite an interesting manner. If we were to read the first four verses, which we're going to do right now, James chapter one, verse one, in the NIV translation, this is how he begins his book. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James writes, and he begins right off the bat because no one is probably thinking he's going to begin this letter by talking about joy. But I find it interesting. Listen to me now. If I were to, if you and I were to meet and we would introduce ourselves, I'm always struck by this. What do you see is the most valuable attribute that describes yourself? And usually we don't do it right away. We're like, hi, I'm so-and-so. It's nice to meet you. Um, Great weather outside. What do you do? Oh, it's cool. You know, you're going to watch the game. Oh, okay, I don't care. Oh, great. You know, you go through all these like nonsense. And then you get to the point where like, hey, well, what do you do? And this is the most important thing because somewhere strangely wired in our humanity, our value is intrinsically connected to the way that we 
produce stuff in our own strength. So somewhere along the line, it's like we we put a lot of equity and value and emotional worth into what we do. And so we'll say, well, I, you know, I do this. This is who I am. I, you know, I'm the boss or the CEO, CFO, whatever it is. And this is who I, you know, this is where I'm going. I just got promoted. I work at this place. We're the fastest growing. We're doing, like, whatever it is, we describe ourselves. I, this is James. He could have very easily and, and subtly in some sense said, hey, you know, I'm not a big deal, but my brother is, you know. And I just want to let you know that, like, I grew up with him. None of you did. And so I kind of know things, but he doesn't. That's not what he says. His introduction to the church, to everyone scattered is, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Christ, of Jesus. I'm his servant. It is in many ways, the highest privilege that any of us will ever get to put on ourselves that we are sons of, sons and daughters of God but servants of the king can you say amen and, and that's the greatest call and so James begins that and I say that so you have an understanding of the posture of his heart I want you to know his approach to this he he, he had a nickname which is quite interesting they would call him camel knees it was a it was an interesting thing and it's not in the text but early uh, Christian historians would write, Eusebius would say that it was known amongst the church at that time, they would refer to him as camel knees. His knees were so callous. Why? Because he was always found on his knees praying to God. It was almost, it didn't matter when you interrupted James or you barged in on him or you tried to find him. He was on his knees interceding with God. He was praying. I just want you to have a context of the person who wrote this book to understand he wasn't sitting in a high, high place in a chair looking down on the church and trying to tell everyone they're wrong and what. No, no, no. He says, I'm a servant of God and I understand the, the place to be on my knees before God. But I'm writing to you that you should consider it pure joy whenever trials come your way of any kind because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He's talking about trials and tribulation, and then all of a sudden immediately jumps from trials and tribulations to faith. Like, wait a second. We're being hunted in some ways, and now you say that our trial and tribulation, we should consider what we're walking with as joy because the trial is testing our faith. Now, he says that it's not only in the testing of your faith that's a benefit to you. He's saying the enduring of that testing produces something that he would use as the word to describe perseverance. And he says, now, don't interrupt perseverance. Don't, 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 don't take it out of the oven until it's done cooking. Let perseverance finish its work. And when it's done, you will be the benefactor. You will be mature. You will be complete. You will lack nothing. I have to tell you, the reason James says that is because he knows himself. He knows humanity. And most of us, when we go through trials and tribulations, we're like, hey, that's fun for like five seconds and I'm out. I don't want to be there anymore. I don't want to deal with it. I want to run. I want to pretend. I want to, I want to go find comfort and joy in other areas. I want to figure out how to distract myself, how to pretend like none of this is happening. And he's saying, no, 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 that's, that's not how we find joy through trial and tribulation. There is a testing of our faith. He's saying, listen, actually what's really happening is you're learning what you can lean on in trial and tribulation. 
And he's saying, learn to lean on God. Learn to lean on Christ in trials and tribulations. He goes, because in you, something is being refined. It's being worked. It's being strengthened. It's being matured. And some of you are like, you know, it's that, it's that strange smile you try to make when someone tells you something that you don't want to hear, but you know you need to hear it. You're like, thanks. Praise God. Hallelujah. But I want you to know, like, James is dead serious when he says to you, like, listen, I know you think, like, this, this, you might be in a season that you don't know how to describe it. It just, it seems unfair. It seems wrong. It seems broken. There's nothing that seems to be right about it. And you have so many questions going on in your head and circulating through your mind that you always feel beat down and discouraged. When he talks about perseverance, I, I, I went to our dictionary that we have in our language. I didn't go to the original text. I went to, I did go to the original text, but I want to read to you what the word perseverance. By definition, it is the steady persistence in a course of action. The steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose, a state, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you have someone who's steady in, in your world? Someone who's steady. Because listen, some of you, like when it's good, you're good. And some of you, when it's bad, like you are bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you, just the rest of you. That's, I'm probably talking to the majority of you. That's why it's so quiet. Then the other side of you in the, in the marriage is you're the steady one where you're just like, you're good. You know, like it's easy. You don't need to be too high or too low, but sometimes it's in, you know, the ups and downs. Perseverance is like, no, there's a steadiness. There's a steadiness in the course of action in my purpose, regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the challenges and the discouragements, I'm going to be steady. Right under that definition, there was a word that just said theology. And as I was reading through the dictionary, I thought it quite peculiar because I wasn't through one of my biblical dictionaries. And it says theology, a continuance in a state of grace, a continuance in a state of grace to the end leading to eternal salvation. Now, grace is unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You, you can't work for it. You can only receive it. Grace in a picture of understanding is you can, but God can. You can't, but God can. And so what he's saying, he's saying, you will persevere, but don't let, it, don't let it disappear. Don't let it go. Endure the trial and tribulation because in the endurance, it will produce perseverance. And perseverance, when it's finished its work in you, in you. See, this is the thing. Perseverance has nothing to do with what happens around you. And sometimes when you, in your own attempt to control everything, Control is a weird word, isn't it? It's probably one of the biggest illusions we struggle with in our humanity. Is the thinking that we can control circumstances and outcomes, and if we do it, we're good. And Paul's like, hey, I want you to pretend, and not only pretend because it's more of a reality that you really don't have any control of what happens around you, but you have everything within your ability to control what happens within you. And so as you're going through trial and tribulation, recognize that perseverance this state, it, it, needs to, it needs to be refined. It needs to wrestle with you on the inside. And when it's done wrestling with you, it's going to produce something. It's going to produce something. One, one of the struggles that I often see in church is the moment you have an opportunity to be refined, people run. 
people leave. They, they, they become disengaged. They, they find other things that are more entertaining that, for their time. And it's almost like, man, you just missed your opportunity to, to be matured and to grow. I, I want to read to you this same passage of scripture found in the New Living Translations. I want to read it to you. Listen, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, any troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. It's just an opportunity. It's just an opportunity. When any trial or tribulation comes, you have an opportunity to consider it great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Do you know what he's saying? When you read that, sometimes you're like, man, I, I want to be complete needing nothing. You know what he's saying? Learn how not to trust yourself and learn how to trust in God. Learn how to not trust yourself for an outcome and learn how to trust in God. But this is a learned thing. This is a, a growing thing. This is, this is, I need to plant something and I need to allow it time to grow within me to produce something. Um, it's an opportunity it's not a guarantee. It's an opportunity for you, for you to consider it great joy. I have a, a friend who's going through a difficult season right now in his life. And I know all of us have gone through difficult seasons. And some of us have been refined through loss and cancer and bankruptcy and struggles in marriages and family. And all of us have our stories and our own testimonies. But I realize the power and what it means to truly rejoice with someone who's rejoicing and to mourn with someone who's mourning. There's times where I'm praying and, and the two of us have shared with each other our challenges. Um, uh, my wife and I, many of you know, are expecting our fifth child. And early on in the pregnancy, the doctors gave us what was a pretty rough report, to be honest with you. And, and um, as a pastor, I have a unique way, the way I deal with any words that are spoken to me or over me or my family. And I say this to you often, and I want you to know how serious I am about this. Anytime words come out, we're going to speak about the power of words within the book of James. Um, I don't let them just linger in my mind. I don't let them linger in my home. I don't let them linger in conversation or thought. I hold everything captive, every word that comes. I'm telling you, listen to me. Everything that's spoken over me or my family, I take it. I, I, and I, if someone says to me, hey, this is the byproduct, something bad will happen, I take that and I, I bring it to God and I say, God, this is what the doctor said. This is what he's diagnosed. This is what he says the outcome will be. This is what he's doing. And now in my mind, I bring that to God and I say, but God, your word says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that by your stripes we are made whole, that you desire us to walk in life and life abundantly. So I, I'm bringing it to you and God, I'm taking what the world says and I'm laying it at your feet. Because I know God that if I take whatever, whatever thing around me that I think I can control or manipulate or to, to fix in my own strength, it'll only cause me more anxiety and stress. So God, I'm taking whatever they said and I'm putting it at your feet. Now, I have to tell you, this takes practice. It teaches you how to trust God. It's literally this principle of saying every, and listen, let me be really honest. I do that. I feel good. My wife and I pray. I'm praying in my heavenly prayer language. My wife is praying. We feel good. We leave. 15 minutes later, my mind starts running back to that thing that I left at the feet of Jesus. And it's almost, if you want a picture of it, I'm trying to sneak and pick it back up again. 
trying to go over and just, let me just have this back. And, and, and truth is because I'm starting to dwell on all the bad things that could happen. Well, the what ifs, what if it's true? What if this happens? What if that happens? And I start to run back to the place of where I've placed it. There's many things in our life that we need to learn how to place at the feet of Jesus and tell ourselves, God, listen, I know I can fix some things, but this, I have no business even entertaining this situation. I need every divine hand from heaven to fix it. And so I'm bringing it to your feet. I'm trusting you. I'm not, listen, it's not indifference to something that you cannot control. It's not indifference to just say, well, it's not me, it's God. No, it's you learning how to place something at the feet of Jesus and knowing in John 15 that he is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can produce nothing. But if I abide in him and I remain in him, he will remain in me and that I will produce significant fruit. It's not the fruit of finances and the things of this world. It's Galatians 5.22. It's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Well, how do I receive that? By staying rooted into who Christ is, by staying connected into who Christ is. When I talked last week about some of you being beat up by the enemy, it's because when someone says something about you that's a lie from the pit of hell, that's not in God's word, that's not true, that's, that's just, just an accusation from an enemy, some of you, you just let it bounce around in your mind. Well, it's only words. No, it's a seed that's going to find a root in your heart. And years will pass, decades of time will pass, and people will say, hey, why are they always so negative? Why are they always so grumpy? Why are they always so, everything in life is wrong. Sometimes it's because someone had said something to, to you. You never held that thought captive. You never held it to the obedience of God's word. And it's, been a, it's become a stronghold in your spirit because you believed a lie. So take thoughts captive. Hold them to the obedience of Christ. Recognize that in trials, temptations increase. In trials, temptations increase. Listen, the enemy is no dummy. He's not going to come after you when everything is good and you're strong. He's going to find you at your weakest place. He's going to find you when all of a sudden, you know, the boss calls and you have, a, you have an interview or something's happening or, or you know, your, your spouse and you get in an argument or your kid does something stupid at school. Whatever it is, it can seem, it can seem so nominal on the surface, so minuscule on the surface, but the enemy will use every trial he can to tempt you. Every one of them. My father would always tell us when we were younger, never make a significant life decision during a trial of your life, ever. The emotions are too high. The emotions are often leading in those seasons, so you never make big decisions. But during seasons of trial, there's often significant temptation. When James teaches us to consider it pure joy, I think what he's really saying is you have the option to lay it at the feet of Jesus or not, but it's your choice. You can carry it. You can attempt to carry it. You can try to do it in your own strength. But at the end of the day, um, the word of God instructs us that we should surrender all things to Christ and learn how to lean in him, trust in him in all of our ways. Philippians 4, 4, the apostle Paul would write it this way. He would say, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. In the New Living Translation, he says this, always be full of joy in the Lord. I love it that way because it never gives you permission to say, I'm just not full. 
It says, always be full of the joy of the Lord. I'll say it again. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. And remember, the Lord is coming soon. Paul writes to strengthen us, as does James. James would write that this testing period produces something. I don't know about you, but I've been in seasons of my life and sometimes I don't know the answer to fixing the problem that I'm dealing with. And, and I'll just pray, God, help me. Give me wisdom and understanding. And James says, if you want wisdom from God, ask because he'll give it. And I remember one time I was praying and I kept saying to myself, you know, you got this, you got this. And I kept praying, like, you got this, you got this, you know. And, and I felt like the more I prayed, the Holy Spirit was saying, no, you don't, you know. Have you ever heard someone say, with good intentions, like, God will never give you something you can't, you can't endure. It sounds cute, doesn't it? It's just not scriptural. I think what they're attempting to say is, God's not intending to destroy you. But the truth is, he's trying to teach you that you are not strong enough in your own strength. And so that thing of I can should not be I can. It should be I can't, but you can. And if I stick with you, I walk in victory. So God, let me not become so arrogant in my own abilities and talents that have come from you anyway to think that I can some way maneuver my way out of all my obstacles. Let me realize that I am fully and utterly dependent on you. And if I live a life that way, man, if I live a life that way, I will be able to consider all trials a trial of joy. And James says the only way you can do that is if you see Christ for who he really is. To fix your eyes on the altar and the perfecter of your faith. To keep your eyes upon him and not the trials and tribulations that you're in. Let the trials be a refinement to you. Man, there have been so many families, so many individuals in our church family that have strengthened me in my faith because of this very word that James talks about. Sure, family, come on, let's clap. It's good to be in God's house. And they were strong. It's not indifference. It's nominal on the surface. It was minuscule on the surface. But the enemy will use every trial. It was like when I saw them, it was like that on in their countenance, it was, I can't, but my God can. I can't, but my God can. Sure, there was that glimmer of hope in their eyes saying, I can't figure it out of my own strength, but I know God's got it. I know God can figure it out. I can't provide it, but God can provide. I can't heal it, but I know God can heal it. I can't save it, but I know God can save it. And that's what it means to trust in God with all of our ways, in all of our ways. Trials reveal our pursuit, don't they? When trials and tribulations come, they, they teach us what we often run to for comfort and joy. Trials often kind of expose where we've placed all of our equity and our value in ourselves, how we see ourselves, whether right or wrong. Trials reveal our values and our character and even our convictions. Trials reveal who our true friends are. Trials can reveal our role in the season we're walking in. Some of you right now, you've, you've just come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're new in your journey. And the more you learn the ways of God, you look back on your past and you can almost pinpoint with precise accuracy the seasons when you made decisions that were in direct contradiction or disobedience with God's ways. And you know the scriptures when it says, God shall not be mocked, a man will reap what he sows. And you can look back and you say, you know what? Um, I, I was, I'm reaping 
that bad decision, that disobedience, and that disobedience, and that disobedience. It's not that God intends to harm you. The Bible says, for God has good things for you. God knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a, a hope and a future. But God says, listen, there's a season of, of sowing and, and harvesting. And when you sow things in, con, in contradiction to my word, you're gonna reap things that you just don't want. But how many of you are, know, that are grateful to know that God is faithful to forgive those who call upon his name, that all of our brokenness in our past can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And every day his mercies are new, his grace is new, and he can push us forward into the life that he has for us, amen? It's a God that we serve. Come on, give God a hand clap, clap for Jesus. I think if there's anything we learned through the pandemic, it's that trials reveal what really matters. It reveals what really matters. If you place all your worth in your job and you lost your job, you had to reevaluate. If you place all of it in certain things that were stripped from you, you had to deal with the reality of what really are you standing on? What do you really have? C.S. Lewis is often quoted in so many sayings through so many so much wisdom that he had, but this one saying I've always remembered in my life. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's something that God does in difficult seasons with us. He, he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He's always present in our difficult seasons, but remember that our trials help us become more like Christ. I heard it said that when we stop enduring, we stop maturing. There is a constant enduring in season. Some of you, you've, you've fought so hard to find comfort, but in this life, you will have trial and you will have tribulation. But we are to take heart, not because we can fix the trial and tribulation in our own strength. Jesus doesn't say, hey, in this life, you're gonna have a lot of problems, but don't worry about it because I know you'll fix them. He doesn't say that. He says, you're gonna have a lot of trials and tribulations, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. It's a bigger eternal picture for God. And that's what he's, he stresses to us. Remember that our experiences can help one another. There are so many of you here today that have overcome the, and, and walked through cancer, issues of cancer and sickness, dealt with financial bankruptcy and abuse and struggle and depression and anxiety and loss. So many of you, and that's why the scripture teaches us in Revelation that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and through the word of our testimony. Your story is powerful. If you were to stand with others who are walking through that story right now, I cannot articulate to you with words what that would mean to them to stand with someone who's learned how to trust in the Lord through difficult seasons. I want to say this to you. I wasn't going to share it, but we live in a strange world right now. Would, could we agree on that? <laughs> the other day I was listening to a politician and maybe I know that was my first mistake. Um, but my heart is for a generation that's growing up right now. And I don't want to forfeit my responsibility to carve a portion of society that's founded on God's word. But we're living in a world now that tells you, you know, words don't mean anything. You can just replace them with whatever you want and you can believe whatever you want and it's good for you. And, and I've dealt with relativistic 
kind of relativism. It's that idea that there's no black and white. We talked about this, that everything is gray. It's whatever you want it to be. But we're far removed from that. We're at a place now that we are publicly and deliberately taking words that mean one thing, erasing it and writing something else, and then saying, you have to be okay with that. I was listening to this politician, and he literally in this message had very strong views on something. There's nothing wrong with that. I realize we live in a fallen world and there's gonna be people who don't know God. The Bible says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are saved. Like I get that. The people who are far from God, this word of truth is foolishness to them. It's foolishness to them. But what breaks my heart is that there are people in our world today, in our cities, in our towns, that are so deceived by the great deceiver in ways and this one politician was standing there and he is upholding the, the dismantling of the institution of marriage. He's, he's celebrating this, this perverted ideology of sexuality. He's celebrating this degrading of, of life and celebrating abortion. He's celebrating all these things. And I'm thinking like, a lot of it wasn't a shock to me because I know the world we live in. But then at the end of it, he began to recite scripture and quote scripture to the people he was speaking to. And this is the danger. This is exactly what James is writing about. He's saying, listen, you're going to walk in life and there's going to be people in your world and they're going to say, oh yeah, it's all for God. It's all for God. It's all for God. And they're going to say the things and they're going to tell you it's all right and this is what we're doing. But listen, James says, no, there is a right way to walk. And if you stay faithful to God's word and you walk in his ways, you will be blessed. The righteous are never forsaken. And can I tell you something, my friends? Don't be one of those people that lives life through this obscure lens to think that everything is based upon how you feel. My friends, we have God's written word, which is truth. And the word of God calls us to walk and surrender to this truth. And I can promise you one thing. I believe with, and I believe this to the core of my being, that love needs to be seen before it's heard. And I think we can love people and not, listen to me. I think we can love people and still carry the convictions of God's word and still say, no, that's foolishness. That's not what God said in his scriptures about marriage. That's foolishness. That's not what it says about sexuality. That's foolishness. That's not how God views life and the sanctity of life. And we can do it with love, but not forgo walking in his ways. That's everything that that James talks about. He talks about the relationship between faith and works, that faith without works is dead. He teaches us that the greater our faith increases through the trials and tribulations, the more you'll walk in obedience to God. If I could just leave you with this thought, don't let your trials and tribulations go to waste. Take the opportunity of the struggle you're walking with today, walking in today, surrender it to God, place it at the feet of Jesus. And let it endure, let it finish its work so that you will be complete, lacking nothing in your spirit. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to pray for some of you today before we go. We never close our time together without giving people an opportunity to surrender their lives to Jesus. And you may be here today for the first time. Maybe you've been visiting several several weeks or maybe you're joining us online for the first time. I'm not certain, but this is what I do know. There's a God that loves you, who cares about you. And maybe you've heard that before, maybe you have not, but I want you to know that Jesus had a conversation with a religious leader when he walked this earth. The religious leader said to Jesus, he said, why have you come? What have you come to do? Have you come to 
to fix the broken government? Have you come to, to deal with this and come to deal with that? And Jesus looks right back at the religious leader and he says, no, I've come to deal with sin. The religious leader was perplexed and a little bit confused. He says, what do you mean I've come to, you've come to deal with sin? He said, sin is the very thing that separates you for all eternity from God. He says, everyone is born physically, but you must be reborn spiritually. Paul would write in Romans chapter 10, 9, that in order for you and I to be reborn spiritually, we must confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave. And you might not see that as significant, but my friend, there's power in your words. Confession is powerful. So when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, the Bible says at the other side of that prayer, there's a transformation that happens in your spirit. The Bible says that same power that raised Christ from the grave, that spirit, that power now dwells in you, the Holy Spirit. And so when we pray this prayer every Sunday, we're giving people an opportunity to be prepared to stand before God. At the end of this life, you will stand before God. And the very question he will ask you will be this. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the one that I sent? The gospel is portrayed no clearer than through John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It says in verse 17 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. You might say, well, save me from what? Save you from yourself, from the sin in your life. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, not even one. But there's a payment for your sin. There's a wage to your sin or a penalty. The Bible says the only way to deal with sin is through the shedding of blood. And maybe it's the first time you've ever heard this. Maybe you've always looked at the cross of Jesus and never understood why Jesus needed to shed his blood. Why did Jesus have to die? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. All these Christians, they always look to the cross. What's the cross have to do with my story? The cross has everything to do with your story. You'll never understand your story until you understand his story on the cross. Because my friend, your story begins when you understand his story. The Bible says that when he came from heaven to earth, he came on a mission to find a way for you to spend eternity with God. And the way that he did that was by giving of himself. The perfect gave himself for the imperfect. The sinless gave himself for the sinful. Jesus went to the cross and through the shedding of his blood, he paid for all the sin of humanity. But the Bible says that even though it's been paid for, the debt has been paid, your gift is waiting, you must receive it. You must receive it and surrender your life to Jesus and receive the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that when you stand before God and you confess, <laughs> you confess your sins before Jesus, it says that the blood of Jesus washes away your sin. And so when God sees you, doesn't see you in your imperfection, in your fall, in your failings, in your shortcomings, he sees you covered by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Better said, he sees you in his righteousness. So if you're here today and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, we're going to say this prayer as a family. You're not going to say it alone. True North Corn, help me lead people to Jesus right now. Say, dear Heavenly Father, I accept your son, Jesus Christ, as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on the cross and conquered sin in the grave. I am now a Christian. Christ now lives in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. True Lord, come on, let's clap for everybody that said that prayer.
Come on, family, stand to your feet before we go. If you said that prayer for the first time, listen, by far the greatest decision you've ever made in your life, hands down. Um, I'm, I'm not over-exaggerating. There are a lot of decisions in your life, but surrendering your life to Jesus is the greatest. Um, if you're leaving today, as you exit, you'll see a bunch of people out in the lobby. They'll be waving these New Testament Bibles. It's a gift from us to you. We wanna help you in your journey. We can't force you to stop. But we're doing everything that we can in our, and doing our part to let you know that we're here to help you. So make sure you let someone know that you said yes to Jesus. For everyone else, let me pray for you. You stretch your hands to heaven before we go today. God, I thank you that you are faithful towards us, that your promises of mercy and grace are new each and every day, that your grace is inexhaustible. God, go before us in all of our ways. Teach us how to surrender our, our, our trials and our tribulations to you. Teach us how to hold every thought captive and hold it to the obedience of Christ. Father, let that perseverance, the testing of our faith, our faith, finish its work in us, God, so that we will be complete, lacking nothing. Lord, go with us as we go today. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And a faith-filled church said, amen, amen. God bless.